Bibles, go ahead and open to John chapter 19. We're going to continue in our series in the book of John. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Timothy. I'm one of the, I'm actually the only missionary in residence the church has. Uh, uh, we have missionaries out and about in the world, but uh, I am a missionary in residence uh, with the church, and uh, my wife Lisa and I are uh, looking to spread the gospel here in Los Angeles, and uh, the church is partnering with us in doing so. Um, so again, we're in John chapter 19. I'm going to be starting in verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his, mother, uh, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man, who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we consider the crucifixion, it's easy for its familiarity to dull us to its reality. It's easy for the things we like about it to be the things we hold on to, to the neglect of others. And it's easy to see the crucifixion in terms of ourselves. So this morning, Father, as we look at the crucifixion, may our hearts be opened, our lives stirred, and may we be drawn closer to Jesus. 
through whom we pray. Amen. There's a, a boot bag on the stage. And it, it's made by this brand, Thule, which is a, a really well-respected brand. I can t- I'd tell you all about its features. I could tell you about the top pocket. I could tell you about the straps, the side pockets. I could tell you about the, the water-resistant but not waterproof material it's made of. I can tell you how it's made out of special material to make it lighter. I can tell you about its capacity uh, and how much it can hold. I can tell you about how the inside compartment has uh, waterproofing, so if your boots are wet, it won't get your clothes wet that you put inside. I can tell you all about this bag, and I can help make each and every one of you an expert on the Thule round trip boot bag. But you'd still be asking, why is the boot bag here? I I could tell you and make you an expert in it, and what you did with that information would depend on the purpose you had for that information. If you were looking for a bag for yourself, you would uh, process the information differently, and how what you did with it would be different. If somebody was asking you about their boot bag that they can't find, you would use that information differently. If somebody were to ask you uh, about your personal experience with the bag, you would have to describe the bag differently. If I told you that you uh, needed to know about this bag because you were going to be my porter on my next ski trip, you would think one thing about it. But if I told you about this bag because you needed to pack it because I was going to take you to Vail next week, which I wish I was going to Vail next week, you would think about it differently, right? What you think about the bag, what you do with the bag, and what you do with the knowledge of the bag depends on the purpose for which you have that information. And in the same way, what we think about the crucifixion depends on the story that we put it within. What we do with the facts of the crucifixion depend on the purpose for which we think the crucifixion occurred. Some people think that God hated the world and he killed his son. They think of it as an act of cosmic violence. They think that God hated humanity and so he killed his son in an act of unbridled wrath. And while we often don't say that, The way some of us have talked about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, made people hear God hated the world, so he killed his son. Some people say that God created a members-only club called Heaven and has been trying to keep people out. God's trying to keep people out, but Jesus is trying to help us come back in because he likes us. God's trying to keep us out, Jesus is trying to keep us, get us in, and Jesus is kind of the way of backdooring our way into heaven. Other people say that God created a moral universe with moral standards that we could never achieve, then berates us for never meeting them, and then takes his anger out on Jesus, and because of that, we can get into heaven. Others people will say that Jesus died as a part of endless reincarnations. Buddhism would say Jesus died as a part of endless reincarnations. And that's why the Dalai Lama can call Jesus a bodhisattva, holy and wise, and say that he has been reincarnated so many times that he finally reached enlightenment, and now he helps each and every one of us do the same. And it's no wonder, then, they can look at the crucifixion of Jesus and be totally unmoved. Because they see the reincarnations as just an endless cycle that we would all go through for our personal and private change. And so they look at Jesus and they hear the story of the crucifixion and be completely unmoved. 
what story do you put the crucifixion of Jesus within? If we ask Christians, why did Jesus have to die? Many of us will say that he died to save me from my sins. And yes, Jesus did die to save me from my sins. But that truth only has value as part of the greater story in which it belongs. You see, the story of Jesus dying to save us from our sins only has meaning as part of a greater story. Why was Jesus trying to save us at all? What was Jesus saving us for? Why didn't Jesus or God just make new people with a moral upgrade? Why would he care to save us from our sins? What is Jesus trying to accomplish? When we reduce the crucifixion of Jesus simply to saving us from sins, we diminish its glory and we risk a heresy that perverts our view of relating to the world. On the other hand, some of us believe the story is I'm a terrible sinner, that God can never accept me, and so Jesus had to die for me, and then because of that, God begrudgingly accepted me. And while there are echoes of truth in that, that story completely misunderstands God and the purpose for which he made humanity. Some of us say that Jesus died to defeat death, that he overcame death so that we could have eternal life, that Jesus came to die so that we would overcome cancer, fatal accidents, aging, body breaking down, and that we would have more to live for. And while that is true, when we focus on the death of Jesus as only securing our eternal salvation, we miss its impact for the here and now. Have you ever found yourself wondering, I'm saved, now what? Do you ever find yourself thinking, I'm saved, now what do I do? It may be that you've put the story of the crucifixion, the fact of the crucifixion, into a story that is so incomplete, it risks being dull and boring. And it leaves you with the question of, so what? You know, sometimes I meet some Christian people, and they can tell me how Jesus died and secured their eternal future. But they are more miserable in the here and now than my non-Christian friends who have no hope in the resurrection. And it's, it, it comes to me, it makes me realize that sometimes we can look at the crucifixion, but we've so narrowed its scope and purpose, we've limited to a story only of forgiveness of sins, or only of, of overcoming death, or only of securing our eternal future, that we miss its grandeur its beauty, we miss its contours, and the thing that it's calling out to each and every one of us in our souls. Paul will tell us in some places that through the cross and through the crucifixion, Jesus disarms evil. He frees us from oppression. In other places, he'll talk about it being our overcoming of death. Other times, he'll talk about it being the cleansing of our sins. All of these are contours of the crucifixion. So as we think about the crucifixion, we have to think about the story it's a part of. Where have you been putting the crucifixion of Jesus? Where has it been in your life? What's the story it fits into for you? As you think about the crucifixion and that we're looking at today, you have to realize that we're in the book of John. Some of you um, may not remember what the Gospel of John is about. Does anybody remember when we started the study in the, in the Gospel of John? 
2018. 2018. Some of you were in high school back then. Some of you weren't in high school back then. Some of you were single back then and now are married. Some of you were uh, married without kids and now have kids. Some of you, uh, a lot has happened since 2018. And it's easy, having started the series in 2018, to forget the arc of where the Gospel of John is going. So even as you think about where the crucifixion, as John tells it, fits in, you may have forgotten the story that John's telling us. Trevor started preaching on John um, in, in September 2018. Carol Joseph preached in the series. Kent Crawford preached a lot in the, in the first uh, uh, six chapters of John. Austin's preached, I preached, and... I would be surprised if any of you remember what Carol Joseph actually said in 2018 about the Gospel of John. And so even as we think about how John, what story John is telling, we have, I want us to remember a little bit about everything that John has in store for us. John um, starts, unlike any other Gospel, he starts at the very beginning. He says, in the beginning was the Word. He hearkens back to the story of creation and in John chapters 1 and 2, there's this meter, the next day, the next day, the next day. And it culminates in the wedding of Cana on the figurative day 7, where there's rest and celebration. In essence, John sets his gospel up as an echo of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us the story of creation, of God making something out of nothing. And John posits his gospel as a new Genesis, echoing back to the idea of new of creation and new creation. He starts off with the sense of in the beginning, the next day, the next day, the next day. The first two chapters of John are like recreation, a, a reimagining uh, of the of Genesis one and two. John also focuses uh, on the temple and uh, what Jesus does in Jerusalem. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on the take a big view of Jesus' ministry. But John focuses in on what Jesus does in Jerusalem and at the temple. You see, in John chapter 2, Jesus refers to himself as the temple. This harkens back to Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1, God creates a dwelling place for himself. He creates a place where in the world, heaven meets humanity. And the temple is where the presence of God, deity, enters into humanity, the presence of God in humanity, mirroring what happens in Genesis chapter 1. A lot of uh, New Testament and Johannine experts talk about how uh, the book of Genesis, the first uh, two chapters of Genesis, are, are a, a layout for how you build a temple. It's a spiritual layout. You've you got to lay the foundation. You create space for water. You the, and on day 6, on day 6, God puts his image in creation. Mankind, humankind, bears the image of God. In the image of God created he them. Male and female, he created them, it says. On day six, God creates and puts his image in creation, in the temple, the spiritual dwelling where heaven meets earth. God comes and puts his image on day six, and he rests on day seven. And in the gospel account of John, on day six, Pilate says, here is the man. The image is declared on day six, and on day seven, Jesus is in a tomb resting. You see, John is hearkening back, echoing back to the story of Genesis. So when you want to understand 
the cre- story of the crucifixion and what it means, you have to understand the echo that John is giving his audience about creation and new creation and how he's positing this story that this role that this crucifixion has in calling out to humanity. But not only that, John hearkens to the temple, like I said, and he talks about Exodus. It's not just Genesis, but on Exodus. As he focuses on the Passover, he's not just talking about creation and new creation, but Exodus and new Exodus. His whole emphasis on the Passover consumes the Gospel of John. John talks about the Passover more than any other gospel. And he spends so much more time uh, discussing Jesus' interaction with the Passover. And even leading up to the crucifixion, he emphasizes the Passover nature of what happens. Early on in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Then he says, the time will come. And last January, Trevor preached on John 12, 31, where Jesus says, now is the time. You get the sense that Jesus isn't at the Passover on accident, but that is a fulfillment of a new Passover. Every gospel account focuses on Jesus going to die as a part of the Passover festival, the feast of the Passover. Jesus doesn't die on the Day of Atonement. He doesn't die at Hanukkah. He doesn't die at Pentecost. And it's very interesting because if Jesus if the, if the cru- purpose of the crucifixion was solely for the atonement of sin, it would have made much more sense for Jesus to die on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the sins of the people were laid on a goat that ran away, symbolizing the taking away of the people's sin. So if the primary purpose of the cross was to take our sins away, it would have made much more sense for Jesus to die on the Day of Atonement. If, on the other hand, the primary purpose of the cross was to rededicate the temple and rededicate the right worship of God and to celebrate miraculous deliverance, dying on Hanukkah would have made much more sense. The Bible tells us that Jesus celebrated the Hanukkah. It talks about him being at the Festival of Lights. The Jews would have understood the idea of rededication of right worship, of a revolution, of radical uh, rescue. And so if Jesus, if the primary purpose of the cross was a radical rescue and a renewal of right worship, then Hanukkah would have been a much better time. Or on the other hand, Pentecost. Pentecost celebrated the harvest and also the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so some Christians like to say that Jesus nailed the Old Testament law to the cross and gave us the new law. And so if if the crucifixion was about the death of the old law and the giving of the new law, coming at Pentecost would have made much more sense. You celebrate God's provisions in the harvest. You separate the giving of the law and the covenant of people. And then that would have made much more sense. But Jesus doesn't come on the Day of Atonement. He doesn't come at Hanukkah. He doesn't come on Pentecost. And instead, he comes at Passover. He comes at Passover, hearkening back to the idea of new creation and new exodus. He refers, uh, Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was a Passover lamb. You'll get this sense of this Passover theme is so huge for how we understand the crucifixion that if we're not careful, we take the crucifixion and we try to take it and put it in a single lane and we miss the greater narrative for which the crucifixion actually occurs. You see, for John, the crucifixion isn't just a, doesn't just happen simply for the forgiveness of our sins. It's not just defeating death. 
It's not just disarming evil and dark powers. It's not just securing our eternal destiny, but it is the culmination of Genesis and Exodus. It is a story of new creation and of new Exodus. In Genesis, God makes the world out of nothing. He fills it with plants and animals. He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. There's beauty all around us, majesty, brooks bubbling, birds singing, rainbows and, and, and sun and moon and stars. There's no pollution, and in that he puts his image. He puts humanity in it, calling us to steward creation and to work on behalf of him in the world. We were supposed to spend so much ever-present communion with God that wherever we went, we brought God-likeness. God in creation, the story of Genesis, is about God's call to his people that wherever they go, they would bring God-likeness. They would steward creation and represent God's care for the world. As they interacted with the majesty and the beauty of the world, they would reimagine God. They would help God be present in all that was out there. And in Exodus the people of God find themselves in bondage, not because of sin. In the Passover, the lamb doesn't get slaughtered because of sin. In Exodus, the people find themselves in bondage, not because of their sin, but because of evil in the world. And God calls them out. He calls them into the wilderness where he will tabernacle with them. God in humanity calling us to renew our, voc our vocation as image bearers co-stewards, those who would fill the world with God-likeness. He brings them to a home of their own, and he, they were to bless the world, bring the presence of God into the world, and draw people to God. So yes, we get the forgiveness of sins. Yes, we have victory over death. Yes, we get the promise of eternal life. Yes, we have freedom from the oppression of evil. But all of those things come in service to all that God is doing in the world and all that he longs to do in our lives. Into that story of Genesis and Exodus, they intertwine. They get echoed in the kings and the prophets and in the time of the exile, they find their culmination in the crucifixion where heaven meets earth in humanity. The ultimate showdown and we are birthed into new creation and new Exodus and awakened to the call once again that we are delivered into a new reality that we understand the crucifixion. You see, the Old Testament and the stories echo over and over and over the same story. God's not done with his people. There's still a lot to do in the world. The world is still in desperate need of those who will bear his image, who will bring, represent him and bring the presence of God into the world. And it's into that story that the crucifixion occurs. The crucifixion occurs because God is telling the story over and over again of his longing to be among his people and to use his people for all that he is doing in the world. We get forgiveness of sins not simply because we're sinners, but because as God's representative in the world, we have to be holy and pure. We get freedom from death not because God hates cancer per se, although he does, but because by having eternity in our hearts, we recognize that we are meant for something more. We get victory over oppression from evil, not because uh, we're so powerless, although we are, 
but because as representatives of God in the world, we represent freedom from oppression. You see, all these things happen at the cross because it is the culmination, the meeting point of all of Genesis, Exodus, the Old Testament prophets, the time of the exile and the time of the kings. They culminate in the cross, symbolizing something that happens once and for all, that all eternity would be changed, and we get to bear the image of God going forward as sinless, as those who have overcome death, as those who have been given the promise of eternal life, of those who have been free from the power and oppression of evil, because we now get to go out into the world representing him and bearing the image of God. So when you think about the story in which you understand the crucifixion, you have to ask yourself, what story have you been telling? What story have you been living out of? You know, the idea of, uh, of me getting shot and having them take out my, my kidney is not a very fun thought. And if you're, gonna, if you're telling me you're going to take out my kidney, that story is terrible. It's painful. And it's awful. But if you tell me that I'm, they're taking out my kidney because it's going to save my son's life, it's a totally different story. So I want us this morning now to look back at how John tells us about the crucifixion in light of the story that John is actually telling with all the echoes that have been echoing throughout his gospel to help us understand what the crucifixion means for our lives. What's the story that John is trying to get us to buy into when we think about the story of what happens on the cross? John 17, John 19, verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in, in Aramaic is called Golgotha. John alone tells us that Jesus was carrying his own cross. Yes, Simon helped him. But he brings out the human nature that, that Jesus had to, was bearing this was bearing this cross. It's on the one hand he's bearing that like Jesus doesn't go as a hapless victim, but as an active participant in what's happening. It, Trevor talked last week about how in, in the earlier part of John you get this sense that there's a lot of chaos uh, and things happening. All these people who should be in control don't actually quite have control, and in the midst of it, God is in control. That's part of why John emphasizes here that in the midst of all this, Jesus is carrying his own cross. John's the only one who tells us that. Going on, he says, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Jesus is crucified in the middle of two thieves. In a sense, reminding us that when heaven meets earth, when deity meets humanity, with perfection meets brokenness, Jesus is there in the midst of that intersection of, of, of deity and humanity, of divinity and brokenness. Jesus is in the middle of two thieves, in the middle of, of, of mess. Jesus is there in the very middle of it all. And Pilate had a notice, prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Sometimes people wonder why, if you read the gospel accounts, they all say something different about what was said over Jesus. And that's because, as John tells us, it was written in three different languages. 
It was written in the language of the Jews, the spiritual language of God's people. It was written in, in, in Greek, the language of the philosophers and, and, the, and the wise men of the age. And it's written in Latin, the language of, of politics and power. There's something about what Pilate does here to declare the power of God unbeknownst to himself. You see, as God comes in and interacts with humanity, there's this weird way that God can even use the people who are clueless. God can even use those who are opposed to his will to accomplish his good. Pilate is kind of thumbing his nose at the Jews. He's annoyed with the Jewish leaders. But in his annoyance, he declares a truth that nobody else understood at the time. And he does so in, a, in, in three languages, in a sense declaring not just that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but that of all of humanity, Greeks and Latin, everybody will know that this was the king who died for his people. You get this sense that even as things are chaotic, but when heaven meets earth, even that which seems unredeemable can be used for the redemptive purposes of God. Going on, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast, my, cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. John alone tells us that the garment of Jesus was one piece. I don't know about you. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine what this one piece thing is. But it's, the, it's this undergarment. And in the Bible... The one-piece garment is used to describe a very particular thing, and it was the priestly garment. The high priest wore a one-piece garment. And so when John tells us that Jesus is wearing this one-piece garment as his undergarment, he's not telling us just that this is the fashion of the day, but he's hearkening to help us understand that when Jesus dies, he dies as the high priest. The high priest who was supposed to represent the people to God and God to the people. He hearkens back to this, this, this image that comes from Exodus of the high priest who goes before God on behalf of humanity and goes before the people on behalf of God. Jesus here at the intersection of heaven and earth again as our high priest. But not only that, as you think about this, this moment you have to understand, there was a Jewish tradition that the mothers would make a garment for their son when they became men. So some scholars talk about this garment that they are arguing over would have been made by Mary for her son Jesus. And if you want to think about what happens at the cross, consider for a moment that here Jesus is dying on the cross having been stripped naked. His undergarment has been taken, and it was made by his mother, who, just feet away, is watching her son die as the soldiers sit at his feet, arguing over his undergarment. Imagine what the mother goes through. Imagine that moment of agony where the mother not only sees her son dying in agony, but sees this thing that she made for him out of love 
being argued about as if it was just some piece, uh, an item of clothing that you could just buy at a store. Imagine the agony she goes through. And so John tells us, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, I can't help it in my mind. I picture Jesus in agony, looking at his mother, weeping, because she's not only seeing him, but she sees the indignity of them fighting over the underwear she made for him. And as he sees her tears, he can't help but think, what's going to happen to my mother? And so he says um, to the disciple he loves, woman, or says to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. In the moment, John tells us this, in the moment when Jesus is at his worst, when you would say that, Deity had every right to neglect humanity. When deity had the right to turn its back on humanity, rather than turning away, he digs deeper into humanity. He gets more into the suffering. He, he, he sees the agony of his mom, and he cares about her provision. And so in his moments of suffering, he can look at his mother, and he can look at his best friend, and he can say, this is your mother, this is your son, and in a sense, take care of her and him together. In his moment of agony, he can still hear the, the pain and feel the pain. When heaven meets earth, when divinity meets humanity, when the power of God meets the evil and brokenness of the world, we see this tender moment where even deity can hear and feel the brokenness of, of humanity. And then he goes on. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. John reminds us that even as Jesus is suffering on the cross, he has this moment where he feels thirst. His physical body responds to the brokenness of the world, of the brokenness of all that he's experiencing. And so then it says, a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge on it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. John's the only one who tells us that they take a, a stalk of the hyssop plant. The hyssop plant won't mean much to us, but every year at the Passover, hyssop was used not only as part of the feast, but the hyssop was used to take the blood of the lamb and to mark the door so that the angel of death would fly by. The hyssop plant was used at Passover because it was the means by which the blood of the lamb would be used to mark the homes of those who were with God. You see, that blood in the Passover wasn't for sin, but it was for freedom and cleansing. And so that hyssop plant gets mentioned here because John is reminding us of that Passover motif where because of the blood that is slaughtered and placed on the doorpost, the angel of death passes over even as the people are delivered into freedom. And he goes on. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he gave up his spirit. John's the only one who tells us that Jesus gave up his spirit. You see, again, you get the sense that in the midst of everything that's happening, 
Jesus isn't out of control. He's not a victim. But there's this active sense of all that he's doing on our behalf. And so it goes on. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they, took, they, look on, they looked on the one they have pierced. John tells us that at the moment when Jesus dies, he not only gives up his spirit, but because of that, they don't break his bones and they pierce his side Blood and water come out. And this fulfills a prophecy that goes all the way back over a th- almost a thousand years, eighth century. And it goes back to what would happen when God rescues his people. And so in the midst of all this chaos and all this brokenness, as heaven comes down to earth, you have divinity and humanity. You have what happens when God, the, Im- the ultimate image bearer, Jesus Christ, comes to his people. You see these pockets of tenderness. You see these pockets of gentleness. You see these pockets of all that happens when the power of God enters the brokenness of the world. So yes, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, we receive victory over death. Yes, we receive freedom from oppression and evil. And yes, we receive cleansing and renewal. But all of these things happen as part of a greater story of our deliverance from darkness into light, where we become those who have been in bondage so that we would be free again, where we go from those who have been marred by sin and be made cleansed and made new, where we get to be those who were anything but representative of God, to be re-imaged in the image of God so that we can become the people of God in a world that needs more God-likeness. And so, church, when you think about the crucifixion, some of us don't find it very uh, appealing to just simply say, God forgave me of my sins, and then I'm going to spend the rest of my life with a God who doesn't really like me. That's not the story that the crucifixion's a part of. Some people don't find it very appealing that God was angry at the brokenness and therefore killed his son. And the idea of spending eternity with a God who's just angry at us doesn't seem that appealing. But that's not the story. The story isn't just about the sin that has marred our lives. The story is that in the cross, we experience new creation and new deliverance. We experience a new Passover. We get called out, just like the people of God, out of bondage into a place where they can re-tabernacle with God. And they can then re-image God in the world, in a world that needs those who will bear his image. You get the forgiveness of sins, not simply because you are sinful. You get the forgiveness of sins because in being sinless and perfect, you image God. You get freedom from death because in a world that is marred by cancer and and fatal accidents 
and, and, and age, and just dying from old age, and heart attacks, you get to image that God had something more. You get to image freedom from oppression, because in a world that is struggling with oppression and evil and brokenness, you get to live and model another way. We can look at the cross, and we can see not just the forgiveness of our sins, but we can see the gentleness of a God that enters the brokenness of the world. We can see a God who, in the midst of all that is evil and bad, can call out to beauty and goodness. And you, church, each and every one of us, gets to look at the crucifixion and ask ourselves, will the crucifixion be our story? Will we become the people who have been recreated in the image of God? Will we be the people who have experienced new exodus, who have experienced new Passover, and now, in the wilderness, tabernacle with God so much so that wherever we go, we bring God-likeness. The call of the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, the brokenness and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins allows us to be redeemed into a people who will go out into the world, who will bring the presence of God, who will re-image God, that wherever we go, the peace of God comes, the promise of God comes, victory over death comes, victory over oppression from sin and evil comes, because we bear the image of God through new creation, new exodus, all that occur on the cross of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that on our own, sin would define our lives. Death would forever determine our destiny. Evil would be haunting us at every turn. Hope would be nothing but wishful thinking. But at the cross where heaven met earth, an ultimate showdown where the brokenness of the world interacted with the power of God. We were called once again to be awakened to the call of creation, that we would image you in the world, that we would partner with you to steward all that is good, that we would be the people in craziness who would model hope and love peace and joy, that the cleansing of our souls would be the means by which society and the world would know what a cleansing of God would bring. Father, forgive us for reducing the cross to simply our future in heaven. Forgive us for reducing the cross to just the forgiveness of our sins. God, we awaken our imagination to the story you put us in. Awaken us to all that you're doing, that you started in Genesis and Exodus, that you did throughout the exile and the kings, through all the promises of over and over that you're not done with us. God, this morning we celebrate a God who came in human form, died on the cross, bearing its shame, and who now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we come to the table, which we call communion, which was your last supper, in which we were told that you would not eat it again until the kingdom. But this morning, Father, we get to celebrate this meal with you. We take the bread, 
we drink the cup, we're reminded that this is your body and your blood. Your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Your body suffered for us. That death, that sin, that evil would no longer represent our lives. And that we could be reawakened to the imaginative recreation of God. And so this morning, Father, may we eat this bread and drink this cup in memory of you.